Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. That's the beauty of it. I mean, some punk kid like myself being able to go and, and meet with kings and presidents and guerrilla leaders and bad guys and good guys and that and they say okay well we'll talk to you since you're a journalist i felt it was kind of my mission to get the guy who did it to uh, answer pretty simple questions you know did you kill two million people why and you know what the fuck were you thinking Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 32. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, the Documentary Life podcast, and the Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. We are now 32 episodes old and counting, and this month we went to a weekly format. This was due in large part to the popular demand for the show. I get emails all of the time from doc lifers in places like Italy, Costa Rica, or the UK who are asking me for some kind of recommendation or sharing their own documentary advice for other like-minded doc filmmakers so that we all may learn from. It's a brilliant community that we're all forming. One download, one social media share, and one email at a time. Many of you already have a pretty good idea of the types of films that I like to make and to watch, or that my wife and I tend to do much of our work overseas in developing countries. You may remember a number of influences on my work. I've mentioned it many times you know, here on this show in the past year, uh, whether it's films or filmmakers. What you may not know is that it wasn't even necessarily film itself that was the biggest influence on my past, present, and I would imagine future work. Some of the biggest influences on my film work, and that also shaped my political leanings and supplied me with many a history lesson, were the select few, the select noble men and women who put their own lives at great peril, the war photographers and journalists, in order to tell the story of some war or genocide or dictatorship in a place that most of us knew next to nothing about, all in the hopes of giving us first-hand accounts of people caught up in events from some otherwise forsaken place. For today's program, I would like to share with you a handful of these war photogs and journos who very directly influenced my own documentary life. These were, to me, some of the original documentary filmmakers, the people who were telling the untold stories through incredible words and heartbreaking images, whose power not only shaped my own personal and professional life, but undoubtedly shaped politics in people's hearts and minds, if you will, the world over. So when we come back, I'd like to share with you two wartime journalists and one documentary filmmaker who were some of the most influential to mine and others' lives and their work. And after that, we'll have a conversation with American war journalist Nate Thayer, who, among other things, was one of the only Western journalists to interview one of the most vilified and secretive masterminds of genocide the world has ever known. Did you know that each and every episode of The Documentary Life has its own show notes? I mean, I'm sure you've heard me mention them on an episode, but have you ever actually gone and checked them out? Because they often have some really nice supplemental materials that go in conjunction with that week's show. There are behind-the-scenes stills of filmmakers and their work. There are video clips. There's additional information on a show's topic, links to mention websites or resources, just to name a few of the things that you'll find within show notes. So if you haven't been regularly going to view show notes after listening to a show, you're actually missing out on materials that will further the week's discussion, thereby helping you best live and lead your own documentary life. So after today's show, go to thedocumentarylife.com and start delving into show notes for today's as well as past episodes. It's just another way to be a part of our Doc Lifer community. Good morning, Vietnam! Hey, this is-
this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Time to rock it from the Delta to the DMZ. Is that me or does that sound like an Elvis Presley movie? Viva Danang. Oh, Viva Danang. Danang me, Danang me. Why don't they get a rope and hang me? Hey, is this a little too early for being that loud? Hey, too late. It's 0600. What's the O stand for? Oh, my God, it's early. Speaking of early... Since I was quite young, I was awestruck by various images and books about the Vietnam War, detailing people from all sides of a war that so many of us Americans had very conflicted ideas about at that time and, and even before and certainly still to this day in many ways. It was, after all, the 80s, which is to say not many years after the U.S. helicoptered its last troops, some dignitaries and, and, and a few South Vietnamese friends and family still loyal to the American dream of non-communism in Southeast Asia. The U.S. was still nursing its wounds of that lost cause and therefore was barely open to any sort of educative or literary exploration until the mid-80s. I remember well when films like Oliver Stone's Platoon or, or Kubrick's Full Metal Gear started coming out. There was, there was a resurgence in the rock and roll music from that era as well as, as popular uh, American television shows like you might remember China Beach or a show called Tour of Duty. They were all coming out at that time. And, and, and finally allowing Americans to start looking back in an attempt to, to understand just what had transpired there in that place that so few Americans knew really so little about. At the tender age of 17, I even fancied myself a bit of Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam, and went so far as to take the entrance exam into the U.S. Army, and was about to commit to four years of working in radio broadcasting for the Army, but ended up pulling out deciding to go straight to college to study radio and television broadcasting. But I digress. For many of us Americans, it was less about the films and books and, and TV shows that were made years later, and more the images and stories that were coming out of that war, sometimes on an hourly basis, for all to see on their television sets at home. Of course, I was too young to really remember these, but, but the images are now a part of that war's, that war's history. The images and words told the stories of American troops being caught in a quagmire of an unwinnable war, or the jungle communists who, who refused to abide by foreign wills and rules, or peasants caught in the crossfire of those wills and ways that it really never had anything to do with their lives in the first place, that is, of course, and until the day that it did. The day they found themselves dodging giant death machines from the sky, or running from their huts that had just been strategically torched in an effort to abide by policies that had come from a white house in a country a million miles away. But who were the people behind those words and images, many of who would go on to become major players in news outlets for their respective countries, like the BBC in England, or ABC in Australia, or CBS, NBC, or ABC in America? Well, two of those war journals and one documentary filmmaker concentrated their work on that specific time period of history, so it probably makes sense to start my list here. When I first began doing documentary work in Cambodia, a country torn by over 30 years of civil war and the Cambodian genocide, I decided to immerse myself in any material about that part of the world that I could get my hands on. As I mentioned earlier, I had been fairly acquainted with the goings-on of the Vietnam War, although as it turns out, I was rather clueless about how its bordering neighbor, Cambodia, was involved. At 7.30 a.m. on April 17, 1975, the war in Cambodia was over. It was a unique war, for no country has ever experienced such concentrated bombing. On this, perhaps the most gentle and graceful land in all of Asia, President Nixon and Mr. Kissinger unleashed 100,000 tons of bombs, the equivalent of five Hiroshima's. The bombing was their personal decision, illegally and secretly. They bombed Cambodia, a neutral country, back to the Stone Age. One of the first individuals who truly Age. shed light on the topic for me was an Australian journalist by the name of John Pilger. I say Australian, although he has now lived most of his life here in England, a country where he really got his sea legs in the field of journalism as well as documentary filmmaking. Pilger to date has over 50 documentary films to his name. Although he certainly covered events and did documentary work for very well-known news entities like the BBC, Reuters, ITV, or Daily Mirror, he has long since become synonymous with this idea of the ultimate independent journalist. That is to say, he wrote, narrated, and directed pieces and films that were entirely made without the commission of another news agency. His deep, explorative work about Vietnam, Cambodia, and Australia's indigenous peoples were, and still are to this day, unparalleled in its look at the stories of people that were often left untold. 
the unsung heroes, if you will, from countries that were being covered in the same fashion by the same big-name news agencies busy telling the same types of profitable stories. In particular, it was his first documentary that he did about Cambodia called Year Zero. It came out in 1979, just after the fall of the Khmer Rouge the regime responsible for the death of nearly two million of its own people. That left a, a rather indelible mark not only on my future approach to documentary work, but also in many ways my very approach to the people and culture of this country. Something that drew me to Pilger was his own approach, which was one that I don't actually generally like in documentaries. The story is told entirely through Pilger's point of view and his reportage. He is often doing pieces to camera in the sort of way that a news reporter would do while covering a particular story. And his narration is throughout the film, but for some reason, it really works for me. He is a tall and handsome fellow with a consistently measured delivery, with a marvelously interesting blend of Aussie and Cockney accents. I'd like to read a couple of paragraphs directly from his wiki page that really sums up the impact that Year Zero had on so many people, including Cambodians in dire need of aid. And it reads... In 1979, Pilger and two colleagues with whom he collaborated for many years, documentary filmmaker David Munro and photographer Eric Piper, entered Cambodia in the wake of the overthrow of the Pol Pot regime. They made photographs and reports that were world exclusives. The first was published as a special issue of the Daily Mirror, which sold out. They also produced an ITV documentary, Year Zero, The Silent Death of Cambodia, which brought to people's living rooms the suffering of the Khmer people. During the filming of Cambodia Year One, the team were warned that Pilger was on a Khmer Rouge death list. In one incident, they narrowly escaped an ambush. Following the, show, following the showing of Year Zero, some $45 million was raised, unsolicited in mostly small donations, including almost £4 million raised by school children in the UK. This funded the first substantial relief to Cambodia, including the shipment of life-saving drugs such as penicillin and clothing to replace the black uniforms people had been forced to wear. According to Brian Walker, director of Oxfam, a solidarity and compassion surged across our nation from the broadcast of Year Zero. So as you can see, his work on Year Zero was massively successful, and four subsequent trips to Cambodia over the next 20 years would happen. To check out more of Pilger's documentary work, which is now extended to countries like East Timor, Palestine, the U.S., and China, you can simply visit johnpilger.com. He has made all of his films available online. I'll be putting a link to this up on this episode's show notes, as well as a direct link to the featured documentary, Year Zero, The Silent Death of Cambodia. You might also get your hands on his, his autobiographical book entitled Heroes. This is one of those books that you'll often find travelers in Asia toting around, and in fact is reportedly one of the most read books by journalists the world over. It covers his early life in Australia all the way up until the early 80s. I believe that the book was published around, around uh, 1985. Peter Davis is another documentary filmmaker whose work had a great impact on many people worldwide, worldwide, not the least of which were Americans, who up until 1974, when the film was officially released, had formed their opinions mostly on the nightly news items or the masses of college anti-war protests that had been going on for a number of years. Davis's film showed Vietnam in a light that many had perhaps never really seen before. In fact, it included one particular scene, which I'll certainly not soon forget, and, and which would take on a bit of film history in itself, which was of a funeral of an Arvin, which is uh, Army of the, of the Republic of Vietnam. Um, the scene was of a funeral of, of one of the Arvin soldiers, and, and his grieving family includes a, a distraught woman who, who has to be forcibly restrained so as not to, to crawl into the grave after the coffin. The scenes juxtaposed with an interview with General William Westmoreland, commander of American military operations and then later United States Army Chief of Staff. Well, the Oriental doesn't put the same high price on life as does the Westerner. Life is plentiful, life is cheap in the Orient. And uh, as the... Uh, philosophy uh, of, uh, of the Orient uh, uh, expresses it. Uh, uh, life is, uh, is not important. 
Not surprisingly, this scene was highly controversial for the time, and still today by some scholars, it's considered maybe even irresponsible and overwrought documentary filmmaking. In defense of Davis, however, who was amazed by what he'd heard, understandably, right, he repeated the question two more times to Westmoreland, who answered it the same way each time. And and, and to view the scene, again, uh, you can go to the show notes for this show at, at, at uh, thedocumentarylife.com. Uh, that's where we put all the show notes for, for each and every episode. If you go there for this episode, um, I'll actually have a link to that scene. The documentary Hearts and Minds debuted at Cannes in 74 and would go on to win an Academy Award in 1975 for Best Documentary Feature. Not surprisingly, commercial distribution in the States was a bit of an issue. As the, as the film, it, you know, it ran into a number of legal issues early on, namely being held up by a, a a temporary restraining order obtained by National Security Advisor Walt Rostow. He was an interviewee for the film who claimed that his interview had been misleading and not entirely representative, and that he'd also not been given the ability to approve of what his interview would be used for for, for the film. Can you imagine a temporary restraining order being put on your film by one of its interviewees, by the way? How about just, I don't know, being smart about what you say on camera? <laughs> Subsequently, Columbia Pictures, they um, they pulled out of distributing the film. And, and, and the producers, they were forced to purchase the rights back and, and release it themselves, which, which they did. And not surprisingly, reviews from the public got much better the farther it got away from, a, from its release year of 1975. It is important to note that this was one of the only documentaries of its kind actually, actually released before the war was officially over. If you were to watch the film now, sure, absolutely, I think you'd be hard-pressed not to admit the editorial bent of the film. And and by the way, you can certainly um, say that as well for Pilger's films. And 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 they get uh, that increases in his in his uh, more recent years. Actually, to be honest, I'm not uh, I'm not a particular fan of Pilger's films nowadays um, because of this. It, it's a, it's a bit extreme. Uh, but anyhow. Hearts and minds, it seems to me to clearly sway an anti-war opinion, right? And by some opinions, may take a pretty pro-Vietnamese stance. Of course, I don't suppose it helped things when co-producer Bert Schneider, during his Academy Awards acceptance speech, read aloud a telegram from the provisional revolutionary government of the Viet Cong, which began with, Greetings of friendship to all American people, and and thanked the anti-war movement for all they have done on behalf of peace. As one can imagine, that did not go over well with many people, including the Academy. But regardless of its heavy-handedness or its decidedly anti-war message, there's much to like in this rather daring documentary, especially given the time of its release. And quite frankly, the majority of what was considered anti-war sentiments at the time, it's long they've long since become accepted history, right? And reflection upon, upon what happened in Vietnam during the 60s and 70s. Peter Davis wouldn't do much more in the form of documentary afterwards, from all I can tell. He, he only did three more films, and, and as a producer, not as a director. He's 80 years old now and, and living in America today. I wonder if he wouldn't be an interesting interview in some, some say, future TDL episode. That'd be pretty cool, actually. The third and final war correspondent that I'd like to talk to you about was someone who, until he dropped himself headlong into the Vietnam War, had practically never even picked up a camera until doing so. Not that he wasn't familiar with cameras or or hadn't been in the presence of them. Quite to the contrary, Sean Flynn had spent a good chunk of his late teens and early 20s playing for cameras. After all, it was in his blood. His father, Errol, whose most famous roles included that of Robin Hood and Captain Blood, was one of the most recognizable actors in the world. But Sean Flynn seemed bound for a different path. Sure, he, he tried his hand at acting and was somewhat successful in films like, like a sequel to his father's Captain Blood, The Son of Captain Blood, or a couple of spaghetti westerns made in, in Spain and Italy. However, Flynn became quickly bored with the Hollywood lifestyle and with being compared to his father, a man who not only was known for his acting chops, but his outrageous drunken escapades and well-documented, let's, shall we say, parlor tricks. Sean was not to be compared with his father or his father's exploits. He clearly wanted something else in life. 
And so it was in early 1966 that Flynn surprised nearly everyone around him when he left his pretty cush life in Paris and, as I said, basically dropped himself right smack dab in the middle of the Vietnam conflict. He told anyone who would listen that he was a freelance photojournalist. Most people, including many of his fellow war journalists, didn't really take to Flynn very quickly. And and in fact, they didn't take him seriously. What credentials did he have to be doing such a thing? Other than the son of Captain Blood, of course. And this is precisely what I think drew me to Sean Flynn and his story. And even inspires me in many ways to this day. His attitude to basically eschew his life of, of ease and riches behind him. And simply grab a camera and immerse himself in covering a war and the people involved in it in hopes of getting a greater understanding of the world around him. And then later, his untimely death at the hands of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia years years on still compels me to look up his story every so often in hopes of maybe learning something new about this man. Now, do I romanticize he and his story? I'm sure that I do. Hell, our son's first name was, in part, inspired by Sean Flynn. By all accounts, Flynn was a bit of an adrenaline junkie who not long before coming to Vietnam tried his hand at being a guide for safaris and big game hunting in Africa. He was a game warden for a while in Kenya, and not long after going to Vietnam, he immersed himself with a group of high-risk photojournalists, including Dana Stone, Henri Hue, and Tim Page, who were all known for their particularly particularly aggressive manner for getting a scoop, including, including often running headlong into a battle. Initially, these trained and experienced journalists were put off by the good-looking son of a famous actor, but, but soon came to realize that Sean was serious about his journalistic intentions. Soon his photos were being picked up by Time Life and United Press International. His photos began being seen all over the world, and he'd go on to cover events in Israel as well as return to Vietnam for two more stints covering the war. In 1970, he took his services to Cambodia when the North Vietnamese were rumored to be supporting rebel Cambodian efforts, a.k.a. the Khmer Rouge, to overthrow the American-installed Cambodian government in Phnom Penh. It is in Cambodia where he fell in love with the country, took his photojournalism career to a new level, and where four months later, he would disappear alongside colleague Dana Stone, never to be heard from again. It was April of 1970, and a bunch of fellow journalists were headed from Phnom Penh to Saigon, where a government-sponsored press conference was, was being given. As the, story, as the story goes, Stone and Flynn, they decided to, uh, to really forego the limousines that were apparently transporting many of the journalists and, and, and had decided to take their own motorcycles across the country and back into Vietnam. After the press conference, word was circulating that a checkpoint on Highway 1, a highway that I myself actually have traveled probably over 50 times, the checkpoint was being manned by members of the Viet Cong. Again, it's important to note that this was in Cambodia, not Vietnam, probably like 50 kilometers from the capital of Cambodia, Phnom Penh. Flynn and Stone were eager to get some of the photos of this checkpoint being manned by a contingent of Vietnamese. To this day, no one really knows the fate of either Flynn or Stone. For sure, they were captured by the Viet Cong at that checkpoint on Highway 1. But after that, the story, like the men themselves, really kind of disappears. At this point, the sort of accepted version of their demise is that they were given over to the Khmer Rouge and held captive for, for over a year and then killed by them in, in around June of 1971. To this day, no remains have been found, though it seems like every few years someone takes up the mantle of, of discovering what exactly happened to these men and where their remains might be. Um, a couple of books have been written about Flint, and his story in Cambodia loosely inspired uh, an, independent, an independent feature film. These are three war journalists or documentary filmmakers who have inspired me in my documentary life. Surely they have inspired others' lives in documentary work and journalistic endeavors. Of course, the list of legendary war photographers and correspondents is long. Names like James Nockway, whose, whose images of, of, of Bosnia or Rwanda defined the way in which we understand the horrors that were happening in that part of the world. Uh, war journalists like, like Edward Morrow and Robert Kappa were considered forefathers of the profession. Famous female war correspondents included the likes of Dickie Chappelle, Gerda Taro, and, and Lee Miller. But the three that I mentioned in this segment were ones who left a particular impression on my life and my work. 
I often think of the important work that they and so many others did, a number of, of who lost their lives covering events somewhere in the world, far from the comforts of home, in order to keep the rest of the world aware of historic events as they were unfolding. When we come back, we'll take a look at the Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week. Did you know that each and every episode of The Documentary Life has its own show notes? I mean, I'm sure you've heard me mention them on an episode, but have you ever actually gone and checked them out? Because they often have some really nice supplemental materials that go in conjunction with that week's show. There are behind-the-scenes stills of filmmakers and their work. There are video clips. There's additional information on a show's topic, links to mentioned websites or resources, just to name a few of the things that you'll find within show notes. So if you haven't been regularly going to view show notes after listening to a show, you're actually missing out on materials that will further the week's discussion, thereby helping you best live and lead your own documentary life. So after today's show, go to thedocumentarylife.com and start delving into show notes for today's as well as past episodes. It's just another way to be a part of our Doc Lifer community. Welcome back to The Documentary Life, and now for the Doc Lifer community question of the week. This comes from O'Brien in Hilton, New York, who had a number of really great comments to make about the show as well as a suggestion. And Brian, he's a longtime listener of the show, even though he himself is not a documentary filmmaker. What he is, is family. Brian Parkhurst is my brother. He and his family live and work in western New York, not far from where we all grew up. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why would you select an email from your brother, who's not even a documentary filmmaker, when you have so many others, including actual documentary filmmakers, in which to direct your attention? This is true, of course. However, I do believe that once I've read the email, you'll see why I've decided to share with you. To give you a little context about the email, on a visit back to New York State last summer, I got together with my brother who, as I I kind of mentioned before, has faithfully listened to every darn episode of The Documentary Life, and it was early on in the life of the show and when I thought it might be fun to record a show whereby I had a family member interview me. I would end up doing something similar about nine months later with Faith Fuller of DesktopDocumentaries.com. It was a pretty hilarious time. Having my brother in the interviewer's chair hitting me up with a line of questioning that basically bordered somewhere between hilarious and ludicrous. When I went back home and, and tried assembling something from the conversation, I just found that it wasn't going to be, I don't know, worthy of the type of show, and audience really for that matter, that we were all trying to build here with the documentary life. So sadly, I'll probably never release anything from these conversations that emanated from my brother's basement, but certainly a fun time was was truly had by all, and it inspired the following email written by my brother a year later. And I'm just going to read this directly. I think I figured it out, bro. Your podcast is very professional and very informative. Without a doubt, it is top-notch. But what I tried to inject and failed miserably was the core of you. I was trying to comedically build a backstory for your audience, let them know where you came from, and show even more of a personality. Which was wrong. I think you need to do it yourself, completely unscripted, no framework, but talk about your plight of the last full year. The new addition to a growing family uprooting and moving overseas, leaving everything you have and know totally behind and trudging on. That's balls, bro. My brother Brian, he he likes to use words like bro and balls for that matter. A lot. He also listens to ACDC and Kiss and drives a really big truck. My brother, he's all heart. Anyway, I continue, or he continued, let your audience know that you could fail, but you absolutely have to try. It's a small suggestion and you never have to do it, but think about it. I was trying to let your audience in on a different side of you, which was selfishly and unabashedly my side, my bro side. I've been thinking about this for six months. Your audience needs to see a little of your human side in everyday plight, which is what they will go through trying to be doc filmmakers themselves. We get 30-second snippets of you and your family life, and then we're on to you know the topic at hand. Flip it for one week. Hell, even through a mass mail asking your listeners what they might want to hear. I bet they want to hear more about you. It's time you give it to them. At some point, give them 30 to 45 minutes of your past year, 
off the cuff, let it rip, and I guarantee you'll be shocked at the response. It's a pretty great email, right? You gotta love family. Gotta love family. My brother is great. He's he's all heart, that one. And I've received similar emails to his in the past, actually. Other doc lifers, while they haven't specifically requested that I talk more about my personal life on the air, they've certainly had questions for me that were more personal in nature, which I've happily responded to in in uh, in mail and email directly to them. The truth is that I think I do offer up quite a bit of myself already here on TDL. Hell, I even did in the opening segment of today's episode. It's a substantial part of many of my shows. I'm often relating a show's topic or guest's conversation to my own experiences. For it is through my own documentary film and life experiences that I truly believe I'll best be able to relate to you guys. After all, we're all in this together, this this thing called documentary. That being said, what I don't want to do is ever take an entire show, as maybe my brother Brian is suggesting, to talk talk completely about myself. That's never been the intention of my show. Besides, trust me, that would bore the hell out of you. Of course, I will occasionally share tidbits of my personal life with you. I often do, as Brian mentioned, because after all, our documentary lives consist not only of our documentary filmmaking endeavors, but our lives that encompass them. The sum is greater than the parts, right? And this is definitely true when it comes to my documentary life. But yeah, I think that I'll continue to proceed with this show, trying to keep a good balance of my personal and professional life with the whatever the given topic is at hand. And that, my fellow Doc Lifers, is the rest of the story. Kidding. I wonder if there's anyone out there who just got that little broadcasting reference. Anyhow, that was the Doc Lifer community question of the week. If you've got any suggestions for the show or recommendations for doc industry guests or any other kind of feedback, please email me directly at chris at barongfilms.com. Chris at B-A-R-A-N-G films.com. And your email, it could be on a future Doc Life or Community Question of the Week. Again, that email is the best way to get your voice heard and the best way that I can can tailor the documentary life to you. So drop me a line at chris at barongfilms.com. When we come back... We're going to continue our discussion on war journalists by meeting the genuine article. His name is Nate Thayer, and my conversation with him is just around the corner. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is The Documentary Life. When I first came up with the idea for the Documentary Life podcast, I was hoping to reach out and start connecting with other like-minded individuals and maybe create a community where doc filmmakers could learn from and get inspired by one another. And I wanted to have conversations that weren't just about the technical aspects of documentary filmmaking. I wanted to also be having discussions on what it meant to live the life of a creative, in our case, as doc filmmakers. And to my pleasant surprise and amazement, that is precisely what has happened with both the podcast and our community group. And now, we've expanded upon that idea with the release of Living Your Documentary Life, a program that breaks down the ways in which you can, through the creation of your art, live a sustainable, creative, and fulfilling documentary life. In Living Your Documentary Life, we remove the obstacles that you currently have in your life that are holding you back from making your documentary film, whether that be financial obligations, your immediate relationships, or your mindset and confidence in your abilities. You will gain perspective, build momentum, and create a lifestyle that serves you creating your best documentary filmmaking projects. If this sounds like the kind of doc life that you want to be leading, we'd love to help. Just head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife and let's get you living and leading your best doc life today. Before we get into our conversation with Nate Thayer, there is one thing that I wanted to point out, and that's the audio was a little bit less than stellar. It was slightly compromised. The connection wasn't awesome on his end. And so the content's really great. You're going to love the conversation, but I'd appreciate if you just forgive me just a little bit this time out with the audio. So thanks, everybody, for your patience. Let's get into our conversation with Nate Thayer. Welcome to the Documentary Life, Nate. I, I really appreciate you agreeing to join join me on today's program. Excited to talk with you. Um, and I think I think we can just delve right into it, Nate. And and one of the things that I guess we should do is let's find out a little bit, um, let's get a little bit of an introduction into who Nate Thayer is. And a good way to do that is maybe you can just tell us, 
when and how you know you first had an inkling to get into this crazy world of journalism? I I think I was born to be a journalist when I was a young whippersnapper. I remember it. my parents asking me what I wanted for my 12th birthday or 12th Christmas present, and I said uh, subscriptions to the New York Times and the New York Post and the New York Daily News. Uh, uh, I just... Uh, <laughs> It's kind of how my brain is wired. Although I didn't uh, start as a journalist until uh, relatively late. I was about 28, and uh, I had just been fired from a job as a bureaucrat with the state of Massachusetts. Yeah, right. I saw that. I, I was a very bad bureaucrat. I probably should have been fired. Uh, and uh, so I bought a one-way ticket to uh, Bangkok, uh, Thailand. I'd had an interest in Cambodia uh, which was fascinating in all kinds of ways. This was the 1980s, and yes. I, uh, I decided to try to be a, a, a journalist. So I've been a journalist for 30-some yeah. some years, and, uh, and it just was, it was like love at first sight. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I'm not, I don't have a lot of talents in life. One that God gave me was snooping around and, and asking questions and, and writing about it. Uh, I don't really have, I, I don't feel like I have much of a choice. I, that's kind of, yeah. it's, it's not, it's not what I do. It's who I am. So, yeah, I don't know if you have, that makes sense to you, but yeah, you're, you're speaking my language. I, I, I get it and I understand it. And I think a lot of the, um, a lot of my listeners who, who we, who we often refer to as doc lifers, uh, yeah, there's a number of them, including myself, who, who can relate to that. What it is, Nate, it's in our nature to gather stories. And we're, I don't know about you. I mean, I'm pretty sure I can guess this about you, but I'm fascinated by people's stories. And when I have a conversation, to be honest, I'd much rather hear somebody else talk. I'd much rather hear their conversation because I want to hear their stories. Their stories are far more interesting to me than my own story. I already know my story. <laughs> I've been living it. I want to hear your stories. I want to know where you come from. And that's a big part of what drives me and my work and a lot of documentary filmmakers and a lot of journalists, right? You bet, and uh, uh, I can tell you that my uh, uh, whatever modicum of uh, success I've had as a journalist uh, has been derived through living vicariously through other people's stories. Stories, it's, wow! It's not, yeah. it's not me. It's uh, the people that that I'm able to access, and uh, then bring to the attention of readers or viewers or listeners. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that makes absolute yeah, sense. Yeah. That, that's the beauty of it. I mean, some punk kid like myself being able to go and, and meet with kings and presidents and guerrilla leaders and bad guys and good guys, and, uh, and they say, okay, well, we'll talk to you since you're a journalist. There's a particular place on this planet, Nate, that has drawn uh, both you and I to it many, many times, and we've spent uh, we've spent a lot of time there. And of course, I'm speaking of the country of Cambodia, and and there's just something about the Khmer people, and there's something about. Um, the stories and the the accessibility to stories that you just don't find anywhere else. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about that, Nate? Why don't we talk about Cambodia? How did Cambodia happen for you? How was that a place that you ended up in to begin with? And and then we'll start talking about your work there. You know, it's a, a good question. I mean, Cambodia in the 1980s, if you're interested in how the world works, Cambodia was kind of a perfect petri dish. You had the three main then superpowers, China and the U.S. and the Soviet Union at that time, right. who were uh, had their sponsored proxy armies and fighting out the Cold War in the hot theater of Cambodia. If you wanted to see how the world uh, uh, gets into fisticuffs mm. on the ground, it was a, a perfect petri dish. It was the same with the uh, 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 regional powers in, in uh, Asia. I remember in 
in college, I convinced one professor to let me uh, get credit for studying the Cambodian language. I, I really, I wanted to know why two million people were slaughtered in three years, eight months, and 20 days. I, I wanted to understand how that could have happened, who did it, why. And so it drew me to Cambodia, and that was essentially the three questions that at the end of the day were, were central, which I continued to ask for um, almost two decades. Yeah. And finally was able to ask uh, the architect of, of the mass murder of the killing fields, Paul Pot. I, I wanted to ask the guy responsible hmm. for not just the deaths of two million people, but the six million who some could argue had the unfortunate destiny to survive. That's right. I, I don't know a single Cambodian, of which I count hundreds among my friends, yeah. uh, who haven't suffered unspeakably uh, as a result of that, and they deserve an answer. So I felt it was kind of my mission to get the guy who did it to uh, answer pretty simple questions, you know. Did you kill two million people? Why? And, you know, what the fuck were you thinking? Right. You know, they basically it. I don't know if you're allowed to use that language on the radio show. <laughs> well, uh, we do have the, we have the luxury of the FCC not uh, not governing this, so that, that's yeah, helpful. Okay, good. Uh, you know, I, I want to stop you for a second, Nate, and um, just to give some context for listeners, there was only one other Western journalist who ever had any access to Pol Pot. And of course, that was Elizabeth Becker. And so the fact that you found your way um, to access, found your way to sit down and have a conversation, as well as film that, um, is a remarkable, remarkable thing, of course. And so it, it cannot be understated. I think what's important here is for sort of my listeners to get an idea, you know, any of my certainly documentary filmmakers and invest investigative journalists to get an idea how long and how much time and money and energy gets put into just to be able to finally sit down and, and conduct an interview with someone of that magnitude. Yeah, no, the answer is uh, more than 15 years. Yeah. Uh, first of all, if I wasn't a freelancer, I never would have gotten access to Pol Pot and the stories of which uh, I kind of popularly recognized for none of them would have been achieved if I was in fact employed by a media organization because right. they would have said you're nuts you know we're not gonna finance you you know you've already said you, you think you're gonna find Pol Pot 40 times before <laughs> and you know you come back from the jungle uh, with uh, you know you, you didn't do it, so why should we believe you this time? Uh, when you're actually working for a media organization, they can tell you they can tell you what you can and cannot do. And if someone uh, was in a position to tell me what I could not do, any level of success I've had as a journalist would not have been it would not have been achieved. And that's not a, a not trying to disrespect media organizations. You sure. know, I love a pay paycheck more than anybody. Else, believe me, I appreciate a paycheck, <laughs> but it is relevant. I, I had always one eye out on Pol Pot because yes. not not yes. just because he killed two million people, although believe me, that was a, a big part of my motivation. But he was also the greatest ungotten interview, uh, in my view, on the planet uh, right. at the time. Right. Uh, any any you know, every journalist pretty much recognized that, but it was also recognized that it was or misrecognized as uh, unattainable you know remember the Khmer Rouge executed 37 Western journalists in their time yes uh, I wasn't the first person to get into where Pol Pot was yeah I was the first person to get in and get out right it, it happens when you're in countries in turmoil you know it's, it's no there's no demarcation. <laughs> right. So, you know, I mean, that kind of that's kind of comes with the territory. Anyways, uh, so, yeah, it took 15 years and several hundred trips in covering the war. I mean, my strategy was basically to build relations from the bottom up. Right. So, you know, if you, if you hang out with gorillas in the jungle, you know, who haven't seen their girlfriend or been laid in, you know, God knows how many 
months and you know eating rice with salt and uh, you know are don't want to be there to begin with you know you develop some kind of mutual uh, respect and uh, so, uh, solidarity or something right <laughs> yeah you know if you're sitting over the campfire saying hey you know I miss my girlfriend yeah uh, well yeah uh, you do uh, and uh, so this kind of morphed from the bottom up and then I gained uh, respect and communication with field commanders on up and uh, I was kind of this shaved-headed, perhaps insane American who just wouldn't go away. Uh, <laughs> they weren't quite sure what to do with me. Uh, and, you know, I, you can make light of it now, but the, yeah. I mean, the fact is I was shot. I was blown up by landmines. I had 16 hospitalizations from cerebral malaria. Right. Uh, it was not a, a, you know, it wasn't a point A to point B down the highway kind of trip. Yeah. Uh, there, there was, uh, uh, you know, a, a high risk involved. But during the process, I was able to uh, develop relations with uh, people who live uh, close to close to Pol uh, Pot, and that started years before I actually met him. So, when you're a freelance journalist covering an obscure country like Cambodia, which mm. you know has, remember, no readers or advertisers, so most media outfits, they're not going to put a correspondent in there. No, and no. support them. It, it's just not, it doesn't make business sense, remember. It doesn't make business free sense, right. Press, they're in it to make a profit. You right. know, if you can't, if you can't make money, uh, you know, you can't have governments control the press, so you got to have private industry. Well, they're not, they're in it because they want to make money. Yes. So if you can't make any money, you're not going to. Uh, support an operation because uh, you know you're throwing away your money. Yes. Remember, people who own these are private corporations. So people who own these things, they don't really, frankly, you know, you, uh, excuse me if I'm not allowed to say this. Yeah. They, they didn't give a shit. Uh, you know whether uh, they they just want to know that they <laughs> they get more money in their bank account at the end of the day. Right. Right. Uh, the, the good ones don't mess with the news side. And that's how it used to be. There was an iron curtain between the advertising and the business side mm. and the newsroom. Mm. We didn't like each other. And if they stepped over the line, they'd get sucker punched. Right. Uh, and, and uh, you know, metaphorically. Yes. Uh, and that's not true anymore. So uh, I, I think that one of the problems we're looking at now is that people still believe they can believe anything as true that they read on the internet, right? Uh, believe me, you can't. Uh, <laughs> you you cannot. You just there's there, you cannot believe anything. Which means I don't want to spend my time having to uh, figure out what political agenda some reporter is. I know it's what awful. I know certain in what he's putting in, what he's leaving out, in order to fit a preconceived conclusion. That didn't used to happen. And, and you uh, and you fully believe that, right, Nate? I mean, you feel like, hey, look, in the 80s and 90s, that was not happening when I was in the prof in the profession. At that time, you feel like that that sort of approach to journalism was not happening. Well, I mean, it was happening, but it was uh, uh, it wasn't happening for the people I worked for. Right. And, it was clear. Was, it was clearly marked. You knew the tabloids exactly. and you knew the organizations that were doing that, right? But now that's become so blurred. Exactly. I know it to be true. I, yes. I know that uh, without the internal processes, uh, they've fired all the editors. They've uh, fired all the quality control people. You don't have those even in major newsrooms anymore. I know. I know uh, uh, major uh, journalists and, and news outfits that you can sit there and put push send from you know a congressional hearing. Yeah. Uh, and and it appears in public. You don't even go through a. There's no fact checking. That's incredible. Uh, that didn't used to happen. But in order to have that, that costs money. You've got to have editors. You've got to have fact checkers. You've got to have people that slap you upside the head saying, you know, what's your, your evidence on that? So at the end of the day, what spits out for the readers to consume uh, is a quality product. Uh, and you just don't have that anymore. When you broke, uh, when you broke the news story to the world, your interview with Pol Pot, and when you had footage of his sort of mock trial, right at the hands of of, of sort of com uh, fellow Khmer Rouge, uh, right. it, 
ABC News and Nightline got a hold of some of the footage, right? And that became, of course, a part of, of your story. Um, and an unfortunate part, of course, because of the controversy surrounding that. Maybe you can, um, what would be nice is, is if you can give us a little bit of context there. What happened, of course, Ted Koppel got a hold of hold of the footage, right? And and then it mysteriously was dispersed to others throughout ABC. And from there, suddenly the story took its own so, sort of took its own turn. And and a story that you had broke suddenly became ABC's story. Yeah, well, I'd be happy to. Uh, yeah, no, I was a freelance journalist, um, and I uh, I had. Uh, uh, Three primary publications I wrote for. I had a number of encounters with Pol Pot. This was a top world story for a number of days. I had the first pictures and the first video of Pol Pot that uh, had been seen in over 20 years. Yeah. But what was remarkable was that a, a freelancer, I owned all the rights to it. Uh, I hired my own video team uh, right. to come with me because I don't know how to. I'm not a cameraman, uh, right. uh, and I took the still pictures, but even that, I'm not a photographer, but I am a, a writer, So, uh, but at the end of the day, I, I came out with it, and it was a zoo because I got over 5,000 telephone calls and messages Incredible. within a couple days before my story came out. I was offered ridiculous amounts of money from uh, outfits that I didn't trust, including Murdoch, mm. uh, uh, you know, I turned down uh, the high, highest highest bidders. My story was committed to the Far Eastern Economic Review, and, and I did that. I didn't, they offered me more than my usual rates, uh, and I, I turned it down because I knew that this was, it wasn't just journalism, but it was a, a little snippet of history, mm. uh, and I had an obligation to do this properly. Right. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I wanted it published there because I knew they would do an excellent job, which they did. But it became, you know, journalists are journalists. Uh, the word got out before the story was published that I had interviewed Paul Pot yeah. and I had pictures and, and video. Uh, so I was contacted by pretty much everyone on the planet. Uh, Ted Koppel, who uh, that, at the time Nightline did you know, really quality stuff. Oh, yeah, in, I remember it well. America. And uh, uh, so he flew out to Bangkok. He wooed me saying I was the second coming of Christ and uh, and so on and so forth. And, and at, back then, you made deals based on a handshake and a man's word of honor. Uh, you know, because in the news business, you've got to get the story out. Uh, so you don't have time for these lawyers to come in and do their thing. You know, mm. you just, you know, you take someone's, word on it. So uh, they had the rights to uh, North American video rights only for, for Nightline. But once they got a copy of the tape uh, they uh, and uh, the transcripts that I'd made, this is all in Khmer, which is Cambodian language, Yes, right. Uh, they distributed, uh, they took still frame grabs off of the video, still pictures, slapped ABC uh, copyrights on them, yep. distributed them to, you know, AP and uh, every newspaper they could think of, yeah. uh, and they distributed the video worldwide, and they, they gave the transcripts to people. It was front page above the fold, New York Times, and every other news outlet in the world before I even got my own story out. And their strategy was simple. It was, okay, promise, this is what the lawyer, ABC's lawyers told Koppel. They said, look, Promise the guy anything he wants. Just get a hold of the copy of the tape, right. and then we'll eat him alive oh. because we'll bankrupt him, and we will, you know, we'll make his life miserable if he objects. Uh, and uh, so that's pretty much what they did. Uh, you know, right. Ted Koppel is actually a, a you know, he's a, he was an excellent journalist, but at the end of the day, he was a pimp for his corporate masters and. Uh, but that's how it works in the big business of, of media. I did object uh, strenuously, to yes. say the least. But the ABC corporate machine—they've uh, been—they're so humongous that you know they don't even know what the left hand or the right hand is doing. And, and they applied for major awards 
you know, with me as an ABC correspondent and then won them. Which is and, amazing, right? I mean, he, <laughs> the prestigious Peabody Award, of course, uh, right. and at which you, um, you were the first ever at the time to turn down the award, right? Uh, yeah, and I, I'm pretty sure the last ever, too. Yeah. <laughs> and I, was, I don't think there was anyone who supported my decision to do it. But yeah, I'm, sure. I'm very happy with my, my decision. Koppel called me up from New York after they'd refused to talk to me for nine months or pay me their initial written agreement. And then I won the Peabody Award, and then he called me up saying, you know, uh, kind of, oh, congratulations on winning the Peabody. I said, fuck you, where's my money? I'm going to the uh, Peabody Award, and I'm going to tell them what a fucking pimp ABC is. Now you guys are a thief and insult to the institution of journalism. Uh, and uh, uh, so within like 24 hours, they sent money to my bank account. Incredible. But, but I but I showed up in New York at the Peabody Awards anyways, and uh, they kicked me out. <laughs> Did they really? <laughs> but, but Koppel had to get up on stage because I, I, I actually, I knew they were going to kick me out. Sure. I, I know how these boys work. And uh, so I brought in a, my written statement of rejection of the award and tapped Ted Koppel on the shoulder from behind. And he hadn't seen me since he showed up in uh Bangkok, wow. uh, you know, promising to the world, and I swear his face turned white. I, I'm, I'm sure he thought I was going to punch him out, which, you know, that I don't punch people out, <laughs> except in writing, uh, and, uh, uh, but I handed him the thing. So, uh, you know, they basically thought I was insane, uh, and didn't, <laughs> they knew that there's, <laughs> I was a loose cannon. So he had to get up on stage and acknowledge that I'd rejected the award. Uh, oh, the I see. In, in the meantime, I, I was escorted out by security <laughs> guards. And I spent, uh, while they were upstairs in the ball, ballroom of the Waldorf Astoria, I was, uh, this was like 11 o'clock in the morning in New York City. I, I, uh, I was down in the bar, the only person at the bar, and I was like lamenting to the bartender <laughs> how pissed off I was. And, he said, "You know, I like a I like a guy with principles. The drinks are on me, so I, I got double scotches all night. <laughs> Fantastic, well deserved, well deserved. And, and thank you for walking through that with me a bit. I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I can read so much and research so much, but to hear it from you is is very helpful. And uh, I can see even in this, you know, conversation, um, I can tell that you are a principled man, and I can." you wear your heart on your sleeve in particular as a journalist and as a human being. And I don't know how, how often you hear this, Nate, but there's a lot of people that would thank you for what you, for what you, what you did and what you've done. Well, I appreciate it. You know, I'm not very comfortable, uh, uh, in general as a journalist, you're trained to keep yourself out of the story. Right. I'm more comfortable with just, Hey, you know, I am what I am. Uh, and, uh, I don't have a, you know, I got plenty of, Works uh, and just like everybody, and I think people relate to that uh, because that's really all of us, right? So uh, I find it, I've decided it's kind of uncomfortable to ask people about all their dirty laundry if if <laughs> I'm uh, if if I'm not willing to, you know, be transparent about my own. What would you say to, you know, aspiring journalists out there or documentary filmmakers, investigative uh, documentary filmmakers who want to work in uh, in war zones or post-conflict um, or corrupt areas that we've been talking about? I mean, y you've done so much of that work yourself, and, and we haven't even got to your time in Iraq. What... Uh, what do you say to these guys? What should they know that a young Nate Thayer didn't know? Uh, one thing is that it's different now in conflict zones. They target journalists specifically. They, not that they didn't before, but now it's a commodity. There are certain places where if you go in to cover, you will die. Syria is one. You know, if, if you are a American or European citizen and you're a freelancer who tries to do what I did in Southeast Asia, yeah. you will die. 
Yes. Uh, and, and it's really hard to write a good story or take a good picture when you're dead. Uh, and, and so it's a different ballgame. It's also different in that you don't have the institutional support. It used to be you could make a living. Uh, I don't know any freelancer who's you know in this as a business to uh, make good. I mean, most of us, if we weren't, you know, had some modicum of talent as a as a uh, journalist or a photographer, we'd be working you know the third shift at a Seven Eleven somewhere because uh, there's not that many <laughs> other options, right? Uh, but uh, uh, you can't make a living. That's the other thing these days. Uh, there's no freelance budgets left anymore. Uh, uh, the whole, as we knew it, the, the uh, uh, TV and uh, radio and print business is gone, uh, as, as we knew it 10 years ago. Right. So I, I don't know what to tell people. You know, God help, help them. You know, journalism is a noble profession, but the... the, the the function of it is to bring solid, corroborated, true and important information of interest to the common good to free people and even more importantly, people who aren't free. So, you know, this is important stuff. There's no such thing as a free country or free people without a free press. That's just that's just the fact. Uh, and uh, so it's real important. But how you do it? Sometimes I, I think, uh, and, and even myself, I mean, I've been doing this for 30-some years. I've had a, 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 a relative success in it. I've been lucky in that. But even I can't make a living. Uh, yeah. If I can't do it, what about someone who's just, you know, starting out in their, in their, in their 20s? It, you know, a lot of this game of journalism is, you know, based on your reputation, who you know. I can just say what I did, which was when I started as a journalist, I, I, uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, you know, I had never published an article. I'd never uh, had, had a photograph published. And I just uh, went somewhere. I went to Cambodia because there was nobody covering the Cambodian War because it was too dangerous. So I thought, well, hey, you know, there's, uh, you know, it, it's a story of significance. I know editors want it. So, you know, here's a niche. But to do that these days, especially in places like the, uh, the Middle East, right. uh, you know, it's, it's, you, you, you don't have a right to, and no, this was true uh, even back in the 1980s, it's a young man's game in a lot of ways, right? You don't have mortgages, you don't got children that you got to uh, uh, have obligations to, or a wife or family, so, you know, you can take risks that... Everyone's got a right to choose what their, uh, you know, what their relative obligations are to whoever. But to be a war correspondent, you've got to be prepared to die. There's no point in going into a conflict zone unless you're willing to die. That may sound harsh, but you've got to calculate that in because I can tell you I've seen it many, many times. If, uh, you know, once you get in there and you haven't, uh, you haven't quantified that as part of the risk, uh, you end up not getting any story or pictures, uh, you know, and, and it becomes a, um, it becomes a, you know, then what's the point of going in? You know, it, it, if you're not going to, you know, wars are nasty. Lots of, I don't know how many journalists have died in wars, but, you know, thousands. Uh, and uh, so it's a very complicated business. I, I know it sounds romantic and sexy, and uh, you know, a lot of the things I did when I was in my early 20s, uh, now that I've actually you know, developed my brain, I, I think you, know, you were fucking nuts. Uh, and <laughs> Off I, the rails I, in Phnom Penh. <laughs> I probably wouldn't do some of it again, because, but uh, you know, that's just kind of the, the nature of it. If you don't kind of go the extra mile and take the risk, you're not going to get uh, the, you're not going to get the good story, and it, and it is important for many reasons. But it's not up to anyone like me or you or anyone else to pressure or impose or put on rose-colored glasses about what it is that you're actually getting into. But I can tell you this: that no conflict zones uh, are covered, but by but anyone but freelancers. 
uh, even the major news outfits, they won't send their own people in because one, their insurance companies won't cover. Won't cover it. That's right. When, when I was in a, a in a in Iraq at a very unpleasant time, uh, every single news outlet in the world had pulled their people out yeah. right before yeah. the war began. Yes, uh, except for a couple, and they were paying twenty thousand dollars a day for insurance to cover their presence there. Now, for freelancers, there was people were more than happy to you know take take my stuff and they were more than clear that they had no responsibility for whatever happened uh, <laughs> yeah. there right? uh, uh, so it's just another it's a it's a different world i don't have an answer to your uh, long-winded okay. answer to your reasonable question which is uh, you know what would you give advice to the young yeah. young kids I, I, i'd say you know bone up on what the facts are out there do 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 seek guidance from people who've been doing this for a long time, yes. and then uh, you know make your choices. But don't think it's a uh, it's a, a romantic walk through the park of which uh, you know you're going to come back and be able to tell stories to your grandchildren because you might not ever have grandchildren. Nate Thayer, you have a a website now, um, a blog, if you will, where we can basically take a look at, at your work. What is that website, and what can we expect to find there? It's uh, at uh, uh, nate-thayer.com, and it uh, includes archives of stuff uh, that I've written before, and I usually when I publish stuff anywhere, I, I put it on there. So yes. I, 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 yeah, please go to it uh, if you're interested, uh, and uh, you'll find all kinds of stuff. Well, anyone who has, has listened to this conversation and wants to know more about, about you and the work that you've done um, will be delighted. I've, I've lost hours and hours and hours of, um, of reading through, through your material, Nate, and uh, I can't thank you enough for having this conversation with me. I, I, could, I could talk for hours and hours with you, Nate. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for, for being a guest on The Documentary Life. So, sabai and akuntran, and uh, yeah, I, I will we'll definitely be talking soon, Nate. Okay, good stuff. Thanks, Chris. Take care, man. I'll talk to you soon. Don't forget, if you're looking to live and lead a documentary life, you need to head over to thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife and take a look at our Living Your Documentary Life program. We'll help you craft your lifestyle so that you are able to make the documentary films that you want to make and live the doc life you want to live. I think it's high at the...